Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is November 11th, Veterans Day, so thank you all for your service. A uh, lot going on today, um, obviously, in Washington and uh, here in my home state of Wisconsin, where the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, trial continues. And so we're joined today uh, by Don Moynihan, who is a professor of public policy at Georgetown University, but more importantly, spent 13 years as a professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. So, Don, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, Happy to be here. Happy Veterans Day, Charlie. Well, thank you. Uh, Now, you know, you and I were just chatting before we started this about Wisconsin politics and how odd it is that in many ways, Everything that's happening nationally happened first in Wisconsin. I mean, now I always think of this as sort of, you know, I mean, obviously I have parochial, uh, you know, I have a parochial bias here, but it is true how, you know, for, for how many years Wisconsin has kind of been a laboratory for what's good and bad in democracy. Yeah. So I moved to Wisconsin in 2005 and so very shortly after that, we saw Scott Walker take over. We saw, Act 10, we saw a recall election, the strong push against public sector unions. Um, we saw maybe some of the most extreme gerrymandering in the country. And then, yeah. you know, we saw some of the patterns that we see now when it comes to overturning election outcomes uh, become normalized, I think, in 2018 in Wisconsin. So, I, I you know, you can, it does feel like this laboratory, sometimes of democracy and sometimes of other things, where <laughs> it happens first in Wisconsin and then it goes national. Um, and, it's and you know, to be fair, you can go, roll the clock back 100 years to the rise of progressivism in America. Yeah. And a lot of those ideas also came from Wisconsin. Or if you go to the 1990s when Tommy Thompson was governor, looking at welfare reform, it started there before it went national. So the, there's something in the water there um, that, that really seems to now make... We see, right, we have it all, right? I mean, we, we had fighting <laughs> Bob LaFollette, the progressives, who really laid the groundwork for much of what became the New Deal. But we also had Joe McCarthy. So, you know, pick your pick your poison. It's, it's either it's fighting Bob LaFollette or Joe McCarthy. And Yeah, so, we're, we're staying with Ron Johnson and Tammy Baldwin. <laughs> Those are our two exactly. senators. It's, it's see, hard to think of two more different characters. So, and very much on brand for Wisconsin to have that kind of schizophrenic thing. You know, you, you want your progressive mainstream senator. We got that. We got your, your crazy conspiracy theorist senator. We got that as well. I'm going to come back to Ron Johnson in a moment. I just want to start off with, I mean, we have a lot to talk about, including your recent piece um, about, um, about John, um, is it, we're going to pronounce it McEntee. Um, John McEntee, who I'm going to say McEntee. Okay. I'm going to say I'm Irish. It's McEntee. Okay. I'm calling it. This is this is the one of the characters in uh, the Trump White House who played such a role in January 6th. I want I want to get to that, but I want to start off with just the the moment we're at in American politics right now, because I think sometimes, well, not sometimes, like we 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 move too fast, and and we we actually need to slow down and go. You know, this is really not normal. So last Friday. The House of Representatives passed an infrastructure bill. I mean, you want to talk about the most routine sort of thing normally, you know, bridges and roads and everything. And it has sparked this this passionate uh, backlash. And, and the um, I, I think it's the um, the New York Times is reporting today on this wave of threats aimed at Republican legislators who voted for the package. One caller instructed Representative Adam Kinzinger of Illinois to slit his wrists and rot in hell. Another hoped that Representative Don Bacon of Nebraska would slip and fall down a staircase. Uh, the office of another a representative, a Republican from New York, has been inundated with angry messages tagging her as a traitor. And then, of course, you have Republican Representative Fred Upton of Michigan, who got this profanity-laced voicemail, which we're going to play. It's bleeped out. This was obtained by NBC News from his office. And if you listen to this, you know, the person doesn't hold anything back. I hope you die. I hope everybody in your family dies, labeling him a traitor. Here's here's the voicemail message that Fred Upton got for voting for an infrastructure bill. You're a traitor. That's what you are. You're a fucking piece of traitor. I hope you die. I hope everybody in your fucking family dies. You fucking piece of trash. Voted for dumbass fucking you're stupider than he is. He can't even complete a sentence. You dumb up traitor piece of, of, of trash. 
Hope you fucking die. Hope your fucking family dies. Hope everybody in your fucking staff dies. You fucking piece of fucking traitor. Hmm. Sounds nice. There's not a lot there when you take the bleeps out, Charlie. Yeah, I, I, the, you lose a lot. So the, the New York Times points out, investing in the nation's roads and bridges was once considered one of the last realms of bipartisanship in Congress. And uh, this current infrastructure bill drew ample support over the summer from Republicans in the Senate. But so this is the, we're not talking about a, a you know vote on war or abortion or something like that. It's infrastructure gives you an indication of how the dial has been turned up on everything these days. Yeah, I, I, it's I mean Upton voted in a bipartisan vote for what was the priority of the leader of his party. Like Trump kept talking about infrastructure. It, it became a running joke at some point. And eventually Joe Biden gets infrastructure done. And so a couple of Republicans vote for it. And to draw out that level of venom is is really remarkable. It, it is. And I, and I think this is where I, I think we keep needing to you know, send up the flares or wave the red flags, whatever metaphor you want to use here, because... You know, political violence is a real danger. I'm old enough to remember the 1960s when we had uh, political assassinations felt almost routine growing up back then when you had riots. Uh, we have a nation of millions of people who are heavily armed and who feel the who feel the uh, the need or the, the the call somehow to join militias or to engage in, in armed protests. And you would think that at some point people would say, hey, we need to dial this back. We need to calm things down. But exactly the opposite is happening right now. I mean, it's uh, people are stoking the fires and I, I you know, who knows where this is going. So uh, since we're on Wisconsin, uh, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Um, yep. I, I, let me tell you my take on it and then you tell me what, what, you, what you think. I mean, I haven't been following it, you know, intensively. I've been following it like most people from the beginning. Um, I have assumed that he was probably going to be acquitted uh, based on the self-defense. Uh, I'm not defending his actions in any way, but so three things. And I wrote in my newsletter about this, you know, that, look, he made horrifically bad decisions. He's an armed teenager who's dropped off with an AR-15 in a, you know, basically a war zone. He behaved recklessly. It resulted in the death of two people uh, and the wounding of a third. I think he's likely to be acquitted because I think they're going to they're going to accept his claim he was acting in self-defense. But this juvenile vigilante is not a martyr and he's not a hero. And it is really dangerous to treat Rittenhouse as as either one of them. But that's what's been happening. I mean, it is amazing watching right wing media decide that they are going to glorify this guy, this 17 year old with the AR-15 who killed two people. And I, I just think the. The, the the celebration of vigilante violence is dangerous, and you know when he's when he's acquitted, I'm 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 sorry to say this makes me afraid of what the fallout is going to be. Yeah, it, it has the potential to have these sort of OJ like yeah. consequences when we're th you know applying our partisan lens to it. That the people are going to look at this case solely through their partisan tribe and will generate such heat and hostility that at the end of the trial, that itself could be a flashpoint for, for violence. I mean, I, I agree. You know, it's you can say this is a young man who made a really sad set of choices. He took and his mom's lives. It, um, <laughs> it's, you know, and you can sort of accommodate the fact that maybe all of those things are true. And maybe uh, he felt like he was in fear of his life. Uh, but, why would you you put him on a t-shirt? Why would you celebrate yep. him as as the the foot soldier in some sort of coming revolution? What does that tell us? Well, see, this is the thing: is if he's a hero, then obviously he's also then a role model. And what uh, we're going to encourage more, um, you know, untrained teenagers with you know high powered weapons to go into dangerous places. I mean, some of the commentary is crazy. And I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to go to Dinesh D'Souza, but, um, I, I am old enough to remember when people actually took him seriously. And of course he's become completely deranged, but his tweet yesterday, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, this is not a parody. I want to make it very clear that what I'm about to read is not a parody. Dinesh D'Souza tweeted, is Kyle Rittenhouse a good Samaritan? If this seems absurd, consider it a thought experiment. 
what if the good Samaritan in the Bible, oh God, had come along a bit earlier while the thieves were beating up the victim and blew them away? I don't know. I, I, I added the blew them away. So this is what's going on is they're turning him into this model, this, you know, the, the heroic fighter for freedom. You know, our country was built on 17-year-olds with guns. And I mean, shit, man. I, yeah, good Samaritan with the AK-47. I, I See, that's the thing is like, how, how do you get in the mind going, okay, I want to defend Kyle Rittenhouse. Which character in the Bible is Kyle Rittenhouse most like? You know, what would Jesus say if Kyle Rittenhouse had blown away those robbers? I, you know. Yeah, I, and it's it, the flip side of thinking of him as a hero is that if he is convicted or even being put on trial, it's he's also being portrayed as a victim. Right. That the, the victim in this sad story is the young man who killed two people that he is that this unjust state is persecuting him for merely exercising his rights which itself is another sort of set of dangerous beliefs that i, I think sort of fits with the the worldview of the caller to fred upton earlier the, you know yeah, the, well, this real sense of extreme persecution that leads people to to do radical things so this is going to be the whole Kenosha story is going to be a big issue here in Wisconsin uh, in the 2022 elections. Uh, I, I mean, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, but the the, the, the riots in Kenosha, the way that uh, various uh, public officials uh, responded to all of that. And so th this will be a big theme for you know Republican candidates for governor. It will also be a big theme for Ron Johnson if he runs for reelection. OK, I, you saw this story. R Ron Johnson was in Wisconsin yesterday, came back and went to Madison, went to the state capitol, met with members of the leadership of the Republican legislature and urged them basically to seize control of all elections, federal elections, seize it back from the bipartisan commission, the Wisconsin Election Commission that they had created. This was their thing to create a commission to oversee elections. Uh, Republicans are unhappy with them. Guess why? Whatever. And, and Ron Johnson, who might be running for re-election, is in Madison, in the Capitol, telling legislators, you know what, um, you should ignore the governor, you should ignore the Wisconsin Election Commission, uh, the Constitution says legislatures should take control, you should seize back full partisan control of the elections. I mean, Don, even from Wisconsin political standards, this is a pretty amazing moment. Yeah, and you look at the context of the comments there, Johnson started beating this drum on January 7th. Yeah. So the day after the Capitol insurrection, Johnson's take was the, the states have to get more involved in determining the outcome of the elections, not just reporting the results of the elections, but in shaping the outcomes. Um, and so what the, the rioters tried, tried to do on January 6th, you know, that's off the table. On the other hand, state legislatures should be doing that. And I, you know, I think he's taking that position because it's a fairly cynical but calculated position that this will help candidates like him and candidates like President Trump or other candidates from his party. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting about all of this is that there's nothing subtle about it. And like so many of the scandals of our, of our time, it takes place in real time and in broad daylight. So let's talk about your most recent piece. You, you like everyone else in the world, right? I mean, everybody's on Substack right now. I mean, I'm on Substack. You're on Substack, right? It's like if you're not yeah. on Substack, yeah. you're not, you know, you're not there. So you have a piece examining. I find this story amazing, so I want to talk about this. This 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 uh, Trump aide named John McEntee. And this is something that Jonathan Carl writes about in his new book. He was excerpted in the Atlantic. And, you know, this is a guy, and you, you write that McEntee is, is worth spending some time on because he really exemplifies the price of Trump's obsession with loyalty, a price that the rest of us paid in the form of poor government performance during a catastrophic pandemic. So, again, who is John McEntee? Just tell me the story because it's, it's, it's a remarkable story of who this guy was and how he became so powerful in the White House. So John McAtee is a person you probably haven't heard of, but you've almost certainly seen. 
He's in the background of a lot of photos with Trump. And most of the time, what he's doing is carrying Trump's bag. So McEntee was Trump's body man. He was the guy, if you've seen the, the TV show Veep, where Tony Hale is carrying around uh, the vice president's bag, that was his job. It, he mm-hmm. started with that on the, on the Trump campaign. He did that in the White House. Trump liked him. He was sitting outside the Oval Office. Eventually, he, was, he lost that job when John Kelly became chief of staff uh, because he failed a background check. Uh, but then well, as as, he, he failed a background check after he failed to disclose like lots of cash from gambling winnings. Yeah, <laughs> but he, there, there was some unexplained <laughs> income, yeah. which turned out to be from gambling winnings. Um, and so he flunked the background check uh, and then Trump brought him back. And so when Kelly was gone in January 2020, Trump said, I want I want my old friend back here. Uh, and very quickly after the impeachment, Trump says, I'm going to promote you from the guy who carries my bag to being the person who's in charge of political appointees across the U.S. federal government. Okay, so this guy goes from the schlepper to the head of the presidential personnel office, which is what? I mean, this is a big freaking deal. He goes from the guy who's grabbing the Diet Coke to the guy who's (laughs) telling the secretary of defense who's going to work in their office. Um, so the, the presidential personnel office, again, sort of an obscure office, no reason you would have heard of it, but it's the office that plays a really important function in the power of the U.S. federal government because it determines which political appointees go where and who gets hired. So they do things like background checks. They try to place people who work on campaigns, um, but it's also means by which presidents exert political control of their agencies. They, they put their loyal lieutenants in agencies that they that they trust necessarily. Um, and so this, this position is especially important at the start of administrations when you have to hire a lot of people. We have about 4,000 political appointees. Becomes less important towards the end. Um, so McAtee might have not done that much harm, but he decided, I'm, I'm really going to take this seriously uh, because his orders from Trump were, the problem facing me after impeachment is not one of my own making. It's a lack of loyalty among, around, around me. You know? So I, I, have to, I have to root out that this loyalty. And this was McEntee's job for, for the last year of the administration. And so he's 29 years old, no obvious qualifications, with an administration led by a man obsessed with appearance. And this is a line from uh, Jonathan Carl's story. McEntee picked the most beautiful 21-year-old girls you could find and guys who would be absolutely no threat to Johnny in going after those girls. And I'm looking at a picture of this. And yeah, it's basically, it's pretty clear that um, he he did select a certain, you know, a, a certain look. And the the guys are like right, right from central casting of geekdom. And, and the girls are, so this is, this is his thing, right? I mean, that's, that's his, that's his brand. Yeah, the, the, I've seen that picture, and the, yeah. the girls are all at the front yeah. and surrounding the president, and the, the guys are off in the back, and that, that sort of probably represents their relative value in, in the administration. Um, so yeah, he, like, this is what happens. If you, if you hire someone who is young and unqualified, they don't go out and hire people who are better than them at their job. So McEntee's 29. He hires a bunch of 21, 22-year-olds. A lot of them are finishing college or, or just finished college. Um, and he hires people not just to sort of look good uh, if they're female, uh, but also are really unquestionably loyal to Trumpism. Right. And so, you know, the, the Carl talks about one 20 year old saying, only in Trump's America could I go from working in the gym to working in the White House. Well, that's true, actually. In Trump's America. <laughs> yeah, right. Not in a, you know, not in a regular White House administration, this would not happen. But in Trump's America, this was possible. And so McEntee starts using these folks to do things like interview staff across the federal government for jobs they've already, you know, taken. They're, they're basically having to re-interview for their jobs, checks their social media. You know, there's an amazing moment yeah, where Mark story. Meadows gets pulled out of Amy Coney Barrett's hearing. Uh, because 
one of McEntee's lieutenants found out that a minor appointee at HUD had liked a Taylor Swift Instagram. <laughs> I had to read that twice. Okay, so the chief of staff to the president of the United States is sitting in a hearing for the confirmation of a U.S. Supreme Court justice. He's called out of the hearing because some low-level staffer liked a Taylor Swift Instagram post? I mean, this is beyond parody. Yeah, that, that, well, those are your priorities. I mean, it, it, like that that's the trade-off. So the, the presidents all have to manage this consideration when they're trying to hire appointees. They want folks who are loyal to them, who share the president's goals, but they also want competent people because they're not going to achieve their goals if they have people who don't know what they're doing. With Trump, that balance just fell to pieces after his first impeachment because of the degree of paranoia. What was unfortunate for the rest of us is this was also the moment when the pandemic started to emerge. Right. So right as Trump is leaning into these sort of Nixonian levels of paranoia and engaging in what he would call a witch hunt, right, to use his language, these folks are being pulled out of their jobs. They're having to underdo these loyalty interviews when the pandemic is occurring. And so at the very least, it's a distraction. And then in some cases, it, it actively hurts the government response to the pandemic. You know, we have 20-year-old college seniors acting as the liaison between the White House and Helton's Human Services in the midst of the pandemic. Maybe they should have gotten someone with some sort of health background, with a little bit yeah. more experience in that yeah, position at that point in time. Might have been a good idea. So what you have then is all of these staffers who then aren't, obviously they're not in any position um, to challenge Trump's you know, rosy view about the pandemic, uh, which clearly undermines the ability to respond to it. You, you write um, in your piece, for example, a group of uh, McEntee's appointees attacked a veteran CDC official when she urged the public to wear face masks. And that that's pretty much the way it was going, right? So these loyal sycophants um, were pushing back against the CDC officials who probably understood that what what would happen to them if they were too outspoken, right? Or they, they pushed the kinds of mitigation efforts that they understood might save lives. Yeah, the, the, the key thing to understand is that McEntee had the backing of the president here. And so you have some examples where, uh, senior cabinet officials who had enough credibility with the president, like Bill Barr, pushed back and, it, you know, he kicked his White House li liaison out of the Department of Justice. He couldn't mm. fire her, but he just said, you're no longer allowed to come into our building. Um, but you also have some cabinet officials who resigned over this. The director of the Office of Personnel Management, who nominally is in charge of the federal personnel system, resigned after... McEntee said, look, you answer to my White House liaison. You're not making decisions here unless the liaison approves those. And so you have some fairly senior people who just said, I'm not going to do this. Yep. So this is also how you you get people like, which it always was kind of the big question mark. I mean, you get guys like Michael Caputo, who was the spokesperson for Health and Human Services. Uh, you write Caputo was an ideologue lacking medical or scientific background that didn't stop him from attempting to alter CDC scientific reports. Um, and that's actually the kind of the nice way of putting it. Because Michael P Caputo was, I mean, a hair on fire, uh, you know, nut job. And yet somehow he is the guy who is the spokesman for the Department of Health and Human Services in the middle of this massive pandemic. And that's a McEntee thing? Yeah, he was he was someone McEntee brought in. Um, you also see someone at FDA who had this track record of sharing misinformation about COVID. Who didn't em Emily Miller? Person. Yeah, uh, Emily Miller. Yeah. Um, you know, she was boasting about not being quarantined, not being afraid of the virus on her social media. Uh, and then soon after she gets put in that position, uh, Trump starts talking about this miraculous cure that's coming um, that will reduce COVID by 35%. It turns out uh, there was vast overstatements of the efficacy of that study. And then the FDA had to sort of walk it back. The, the head of FDA was sort of put in this really bad position uh, and, and this is not just damaging 
to the administration, but to the credibility of these agencies. Like we are at a moment where we're talking so much about whether we should trust our scientific agencies, and a lot of Americans don't. Uh, and it doesn't help when you have these political officials saying one thing, the scientific folks saying another, or being forced to say something that they don't really believe in. So let's fast forward um, to the the January 6th, um, the attempt to overturn the election and everything. Uh, Jonathan Carl is writing about uh, his excerpt in his book really focuses on the fact that, that McEntee became part of this cabal seeking to overturn the election. I mean, he was one of the people who sent the, he sent the memo to uh, Mike Pence's chief of staff, you know, explaining this wild and historically flawed account of how the Jeffersonian precedent somehow precedent allowed the, the VP to use his powers to hand the election to Trump. So he's really right at the center of all of those efforts to overturn the election, right? Because he was he was the one who was chemically loyal to Donald Trump. Yeah. So he's doing that. And it, I think this is part of the like the lesson of the loyal lieutenant, which is why is McEntee willing to do this? Or what does it mean to have such intense loyalty to a man? It means you have less loyalty to the Constitution. You have less loyalty to democratic outcomes. Like if, you, if your deepest loyalty is to the person, it's not to the broader system we're in. And I think partly with McEntee, as with some of the other folks he brought in, it's not just that he adored Trump. I don't know what his personal feelings were towards Trump, but that Trump was his meal ticket. Like this is someone who was brought into the highest level of government uh, based on no real qualification. Uh, and so there's a, it, again, in Trump's America, this is something that's possible for him outside of Trump's America. You know, he's just a regular former college quarterback who is not especially well qualified for a lot of other positions in life. Well, and the reason I think it's it's worth looking back at this and talking about it is because it's an indication of what might be coming. I, I, I don't know whether you saw David Frum was on on Matt uh, on Matt Lewis's uh, podcast. He had an interesting line. He said, "I'm wor- I'm really worried about the return of Donald Trump this time because this time the Velociraptors have figured out how to work the doorknobs." Is if, 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 if there's a Trump 2.0, you're going to get a lot more people like Johnny McEntee running the government, telling people what to do, threatening people, pure loyalty, complete um, either ignorance or indifference to the rule of law or the constitutional limits. And and I mean, we, we look back on what happened and, you know, part of it is this, you know, comedy of errors, the incompetence, not knowing what to do, you know, you know, a restored President Trump does know where, you know, you know, doesn't, doesn't know what, what's behind those closet doors now. Yeah. It's, it's important. I think if you were watching the Trump administration for four years, it's very easy to say it was chaos every day. Yeah. And, and there's some element of that is true, but it did get dramatically worse in that last year. Uh, and I think partly that was because of the pandemic, but partly it was because Trump no longer felt any sense of restraint. Right. When Trump came in as president the first time, there is no Bush world he can draw from for a bench of strong political appointees. He doesn't really know what he's doing. And so there's still like these sort of respectable picks. He still feels somewhat constrained uh, by norms and institutions. By year four, Trump is convinced that the deep state is against them. And I don't think that's just rhetoric or red meat for the crowd. I think he really believes that. that. And he has found the levers and mechanisms to take control of that deep state. McEntee is one example. There are other examples with the career federal bureaucracy where if he comes back, I have no doubt that on day one, you will have not just folks like McEntee, but he will try to turn potentially hundreds of thousands of career jobs into political appointee positions that he can then fire at will. No, I, I think, I think you're absolutely right. You know, and I, I have to say that I, you know, I thought I was following everything very, very, very closely uh, between the election and the inauguration. But what we're learning now 
about uh, his efforts uh, to uh, overturn the election are really amazing because I remember the first time that I heard about the, the idea, I'm trying to think where it was, the, the first time I heard the idea that the vice president could not count the electoral votes, maybe was it like a Paul Gosar uh, lawsuit filed somewhere. But, but I remember thinking, this is just so crazy. It's so ludicrous. It's so ridiculous that no one's going to take it seriously. And now we're finding out that it was at the heart of the whole Claremont, John Eastman, uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani, Steve Bannon plot to overturn the election. And um, I, I'll, it will be interesting to know what, what comes out of the January 6th committee, how much more they find out, because I do think they've already, we've already learned a great deal. So how what do you think about the January 6th committee and, and how it is proceeding and whether or not they are going to enforce the subpoenas? Do you have thoughts about that? I hope they do. I mean, yeah. this, this seems to be one of those occasions where the job has just such outsized importance to our democracy that the idea, for example, the president could waive executive privilege and say, I'm, I'm simply not going to tell you. Uh, how I was thinking or who I was talking to or how this came about when the result was, uh, you know, from my perspective, an attempt to reverse a free and fair election. Uh, if the, if Congress can't do that, what is, what is the purpose of Congress? Uh, see, I, I think that's a really great point. Okay, let's, can we just switch gears a little bit? Because I, sure. I, you write and, and talk about a lot of uh, other things that, that I was really anxious to, to talk with you about, including uh, the, the, the rage for book burning around the country. Um, and we use the term book burning sort of metaphorically, except that I, I now see that there are some school board members who are openly saying, yes, these books that are being removed from the library, they should be burned. I mean, it's it's they've they've actually gone there. There's you can't you 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 can't exaggerate some of the things that they're saying. There is a real passion right now for legislating what's going on um, in in the schools. Um, and and so, talk to me a little bit about uh, this this rage for banning things in the schools. Which I'm I'm trying to think of the last time we had something quite this widespread or coordinated. Yeah, it, uh, it's the year 2021 that we're talking about book bans. Yeah. Um, and every year, the American Library Association releases a banned book list, and, and it has these books like The Great Gatsby or Huckleberry Finn or The Catcher in the Rye, which historically have been you know, the, the books that have received the most challenges by members of the public. But we thought that was in the past, right? I mean, we thought... We were talking about history when we were talking about banned book lists, but they seem to be coming back with a vengeance. The differences with these new banned books, they're primarily by authors of color. So they're often about some combination of race, gender, or sexuality. And by sexuality, I, I you know, I sort of mean acknowledging that LGBTQ people exist, right? Um, and so the, the nature of what books are being challenged and subject to bans here tells us something about the broader political movement behind it, which I think is tied to, uh, you know, what some folks might sort of see as an anti-CRT approach, sure but might also be seen as sort of a, 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 an educational gag, uh, set of educational gag orders. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that these two things are happening at the same time. Um, and so we just well, saw a case yeah. in Wichita where a, a yes. library pulled, like, you know, uh, fences, <laughs> yep. a Pulitzer Prize-winning drama from a library because one parent had objected to a single book and then submitted 30 other books that they said should be pulled as well. It's, it's really remarkable. It is remarkable and it's happening everywhere. So I, I think you and I may have slightly different perspectives on all of this, but it strikes me that right now, uh, the, the liberal ideal, particularly of academic freedom is under attack from both the illiberal right and, and the illiberal left. Uh, and I know that you've pushed back against some of that, 
Um, but you know, the, the, the reality is, is that there are, there are folks on the left who've also, uh, you know, lost, you know, for, for whom free speech has lost its, its luster as well. I guess the question is how you weigh the, the relative threats. Yeah. I, I, this is an important point because I think if you ask most people like me who work in a university is free speech important, our reflexive response is always almost always going to be yes, right? And then there's going to be these sort of nuanced cases about when you should accommodate constraints on speech. But the, the underlying value here is towards sharing of knowledge. So most of the time, you know, I would agree with a lot of people um, who bang on about free speech on campus um, that things like speech codes are a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Where we differ is what are the most serious threats? And this is partly a function, I think, of the fact that I was a professor in a state institution for a long time. My view is the most serious threats are always state censorship. That when students protest or students complain, you know, that's partly their exercise of speech. And it can get too much in cases, there's, there's cases of overreach by administrators, absolutely concede that. But that's not comparable to a state saying certain books shall not be taught. In, in my mind, those are not comparable threats because that state threat is really a constraint upon our rights. And it's usually accompanied by constraints on other types of rights you know the types of states that do this it's not just america places like turkey or china or hungary are constraining speech in academia there are other constraints on people's individual and often democratic rights that are occurring at the same time and so frequently those things accompany one another Um, and we have an example of it uh, uh last week when the state of Florida, right. um, they have many fine educational institutions. I know a lot of great professors down there. University of Florida were telling some of their professors, you can't testify in a voting rights case because the state of Florida is a defendant. And it turns out there were some other cases about masks in schools where epidemiologists who worked for the university was, was also told you, you couldn't testify. To me, that seems like a profoundly illiberal threat. Um, and I think part of what I'm concerned about is that there's maybe less attention to that threat than there is to the threat of you know, students uh, um, pushing back against books. Um, and so, I think some of the book banning discussion now is starting to make that really clear. Right. I mean, you would you would hope that maybe this will this will lead to a you know, reaffirmation of some of these you know small L liberal values. So let me just read you. You you know that um, Barry Weiss and others have just founded a new university, which is going to be this bastion of free expression. I want to get your thoughts on all of it. But uh, the former president of St. John's College um, wrote a piece the other day. Let me just read a paragraph. He said, the numbers tell the story as well as any anecdote you've read in the headlines or heard within your own circles. Nearly a quarter of American academics in the social sciences or humanities endorse ousting a colleague for having a wrong opinion on hot button issues such as immigration or gender differences. Over a third of conservative academics and PhD students say they have been threatened with disciplinary action for their views. Four out of five American PhD students are willing to discriminate against right-leaning scholars, according to this one study. The picture among undergraduates is even bleaker. In Heterodox Academy's uh, campus uh, expression survey last year, 62% of sampled college students agreed that the climate on their campuses prevented students from saying things they believe. Nearly 70% of students favored reporting professors if the professor says something students find offensive. The Foundation for Individual Rights in Education Fire reports at least 491 disinvitation campaigns since 2000, roughly half were successful. So these are legitimate concerns, aren't they? Even if not all of them are state action. So uh, my background is as a social scientist here. So when I see these surveys, I generally sort of try to look under the hood. And 
they're often you know sort of constructed in a certain way that is intended to give a certain type of result. So I prefer to look at other sources of information like a general social survey, which has been asking questions about tolerance of dissenting views for 50 years or so. And if you look at that, in general, people's uh, tolerance for disagreement has not declined. Um, and students tend to be as tolerant, if not more tolerant, than general members of the public. Um, with FIRE, I think, you know, FIRE is a fantastic organization. Uh, they focus very much on defending free speech mm -hmm. and deplatforming. And you know, another statistic you could have used is that they identified that more pushback um, within universities comes from the left than from the right. And they, they have a database that monitors this. Um, one thing I would argue they miss, though, is that a lot of attacks on free speech that they don't measure come from the right. So, for example, uh, I tweeted something and I ended up on Fox News. Oh, and really? then congratulations. My, my inbox yeah. quickly filled up with a lot of messages, some of which were sort of on the lines that um, uh, uh, Representative Upton got. But that doesn't make the FIRE database, right? Um, so that doesn't right. get counted in how they, they measure these things. And it's also, and look, look deplatforming is bad, and I oppose it. We can talk about, for example, Dorian Abbott, who had his yeah. uh, invitation to MIT uh, um, uh, removed. Um, but it's also important to put these numbers into the broader context, which is that we have something like 30, I think it's 32,000 higher educational institutions in America, right? It's a huge, huge industry. Um, and so a couple of hundred deep platformings over a couple of years, you know, when you just look at them as a percentage of all institutions in America is not a vast amount. But I, yeah, there, 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 there is that tendency to treat anecdotes as data, um, and and your your point is that uh, you can you can certainly highlight certain of these episodes. But I mean, some of the stories, like the 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 Abbott story. I mean, here's a, a guy who was he's was a climate. What, I mean, sorry, he was he was a scientist, and and he was disinvited. He's basically been blackballed because he had the wrong opinions about affirmative action. I mean, that's a pretty good indication of how intolerant. Uh, the environment is in some circles of academia, isn't it? So I, I think the Abbott case is fascinating for, for a couple of reasons. So it's true. He was uh, disinvited um, from what I believe was a public-facing lecture because people objected to something he'd written in Newsweek um, about affirmative action, where he'd made the case for a different approach to thinking about affirmative action and what bothered people is that in the last paragraph, he made some comparison to 1930s Germany and affirmative action, which I think mm. really sort of ruffled people. Still, it, you know, he's, he's a qualified scientist. He's once given his invitation should not have been rescinded. Having said that, MIT re-invited him back. That's something that doesn't, like the department didn't re-invite him back, but the university did. Um, so he, you know, th there was a debate within MIT about whether this was an appropriate response. And this is part of what I think people don't understand if they're not on campus, is that the campus is full of people who disagree with each other. And we've been debating about what are the right norms for speech for hundreds of years. And this is part of that debate. And so ultimately, I think the institution of MIT sort of backtracked and said, this was a mistake. Um, and it sent a signal to other parts of the institution to say, you know, this is really not how you should think about treating your invited speakers. And so the, the initial disinvite, very troubling, the part that I think doesn't get picked up is that the institution sort of corrected itself. And you also saw lots of other institutions invite Abbott sort of make a point 
So there was a real debate there about this. So in in, in the end, that, that may have been positive. No, one thing that really has has struck me, and I'm sure you've you've seen it as well, is watching people on the right who had been uh, you know all in on academic freedom and the right of free speech, to watch how quickly they pivoted during this debate over critical race theory to embracing not just censorship but the complete cancel culture. It was just like it, it it's it's like somebody hit a switch. And, you know, from this, you know, very robust uh, defense of, of, of academic freedom to um, really uniform endorsement of these laws that, that tell teachers not only what books they can't uh, teach, but also what words they can't use. Here in Wisconsin, they actually helpfully came up with a list of words that would violate the law, which again is one of those moments where this is beyond parody. And are you the same guy that was arguing for free speech five minutes ago? See, th- this is the, the cynical era that we're living right now. Yeah, I, I think I've, I've always been sort of really attuned to this, being a professor in Wisconsin for a long time. I can remember when, for example, Scott Walker um, pulled the search for truth from the university mission statement. You know, then he backtracked and said it was a drafting error. Um, and my impression was always the commitment to free speech and academic freedom was valuable in as much as it was used to defend more conservative speakers, so when Ben Shapiro's on campus, or more conservative faculty. And we had a faculty member in Marquette whose case went to the Supreme Court right. after John, he John, John McAdams, yeah. Yeah, John McAdams. Yeah. And, you know, very conservative faculty member and the heavily conservative Wisconsin Supreme Court backed his right to speech there. And so I think there was always this contingent element um, for that defense of freedom in parts of the, the conservative world. And then when critical race theory uh, came along as sort of a bogeyman, yeah, um, it was, you know, so good that they couldn't pass it up. And, and, and you know, literally having the connection between the anti-CRT bills and the book burning that we were talking about earlier is that many of those anti-CRT bills they embedded in statute, thou shall not teach this book. Like the 1619 right. Project, you cannot bring it into a classroom. You cannot discuss it in an educational setting. No, and that's, in a, in a lot of ways, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, the the, the whole emphasis on, on academic freedom is part of kind of the marketing tool, which is that, you know, I'm saying something so bold that they will shut me down or um, you, you you need to watch this YouTube video before it is censored or it is banned. That's very much part of the whole Ben Shapiro shtick, right? That, that I am that I'm a victim, that I'm saying these uncomfortable truths. So what do you think about this new uh, University of Austin? I, I'm I actually have mixed feelings. They have a very, very impressive list of people who are involved. So and there's a long history in higher education of people creating new institutions. But I wonder where you go if the whole approach is, you know, we are the anti-woke university. Um, it, 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 you know, you know what I mean? I'm, I mean, when they founded the University of Chicago, for example, it was this is the kind of humanities curriculum we want. We want to emphasize the great books. I'm not sure that a university that is created as a reaction to um, intolerance. I mean, what are they going to do? Are they just going to have courses in like, here's my outrageous opinion today, or here's something that, that I'm going to teach you that you wouldn't be allowed to teach at Yale or Harvard. I mean, is that the way it's going to go? I just don't know. I mean, I'm, I wish them the best, but I have questions. What do you think? Uh, so I think good luck to them. Yeah. Uh, it's going to turn out to be harder to run a university than they might've anticipated it. You know, it's sort of like the dog who caught the car. Um, that they've been barking uh, uh, at this thread for a long time. Once you actually start to run the university, you have to deal with the complexity and contradictions of really running a university. Now, there's a question of whether they'll really have a university or whether they'll have like sort of TEDx talks and summer events. It's not accredited. There might not be degrees, but they're promising a real university. I do think they have sort of painted themselves into an intellectual corner where on the one hand, their argument is we are uh, 
thinkers who value intellectual diversity. On the other hand, there are two problems with that. One is the core thing that seems to hold the enterprise together is this opposition to wokeism. Right. The the sense that, you know, wokeism is silencing us and you can only do that so often, right? Like at some point that message gets boring and people are going to ask what's next. Um, The second problem is that a lot of the folks who are associated with this university have themselves not really good records when it comes to free speech or academic freedom or attacking people they disagree with. Um, You know, uh, Niall Ferguson, who wrote this really long piece in Bloomberg about the, the need for this new university and academic freedom and so on, when he was at Stanford, he sort of did opposition research on an undergraduate student and tried to make his life miserable because they disagreed with each other politically. Once you take responsibility for these values, you have to live up to these values. No, I and I think that, that assuming that they are values as opposed to simply cudgels to use um, in in this week's culture war. But I, I again, I, I think they these are serious scholars, and with with a few exceptions, um, I, I think that they um, obviously have put their reputations on the line, and therefore are going to have to create a real university. But I agree with you. I think that there's there's the the question about you know once the anti wokeism thing, you know after after week six of being anti-woke, what do you do? What's what's the next thing that you do in your course on Shakespeare or your, or your course on uh, you know the history of uh, of the uh, of the Hundred Years War? Um, Don Winahan, thank you so much for joining me. Um, you are a a prolific figure on social media, and you have your own Substack newsletter, which is called Can We Still Govern? Can we? You have an answer? What's the spoiler alert? It's a, can we, can we <laughs> it's a struggle. Uh, <laughs> eternal vigilance. Maybe we can, but things are not looking good, Charlie. All right. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. I appreciate it very much, Don. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. and We'll do this all over again.